end every workout the right way with Core Power. Fueled by 26 grams of high quality protein to give your body what it needs when it needs it. Recover and build lean muscle with Core Power. What's up, y'all? I'm Amanda Seals, and listen, I get it. We're in some serious times, so I think some of y'all forgot I'm a comic. She had them jokes. I mean, you forgot I had a whole HBO comedy special. I be you forgot I showed love to how black women give compliments. Okay, polka dots. And threw shade to how white women move in corporate America. Stop CCing all these unnecessary people on these goddamn emails. I get it. We've been cooped up for a long time. That's why the Amanda Seals Black Outside Again Comedy Tour is coming to a city near you. Go to amandaseals.com today and get your tickets so we can laugh and learn our way through this madness together. How black am I going to have to get? It's a good show. So Jessa said, I wish there were emojis for real life. So that when I talked to people, they could know that I wasn't being a bitch. I said, Jessa. It's called your face. <laughs> You're listening to Mormon and the Meth Head. If you put a Mormon and a Meth Head together, this is what they sound like. Aaron Woodall and Jessa Reed are friends. Listen to them talking to Mike. are in the big apple as they say new york city baby we came for the new york comedy fest as you guys know i had the uh comics to watch showcase it was last night and i cannot remember it i, I don't remember it it was very good thank you that is what i've been told um i think i had so much adrenaline leading up to this show uh and i had i had kind of uh i don't know i feel like i'd done an okay job of keeping it in check but then then showtime came and here's what happened so there was there's my first my first punchline of my set uh was one it's a relatively new joke but i felt like this is this has to be in the set it was a last minute decision relatively last minute I was like, I want to put this one in. And it's a joke that the longer I let the audience sit in silence before I delivered the punchline, the bigger the laughs got. And I thought, oh, what a great way to showcase what a poised and talented veteran comic I am that I'm not afraid of silence. And so I'm going to open it up with a bunch of silence, which is a, a recipe for success. And so I did, I, I just, I did the setup and then I just sat quietly, not afraid of this silence. And then I delivered the punchline and I did not go well. It did not land. It went better than you think it went. It went better than I think I did. Probably. You're probably right. But, um, still panic alarms went off in my head and then I think I blacked out. I, I, I think my autopilot took over and finished the set without me and somehow stuck the landing. I know that I did well. My last joke was an, was an applause breaker. Like I, I walked off the stage to raucous applause. I know that much. And then I, and then I got off stage and everyone was shaking my hand and stuff and telling me how, what a good job I did. And I was like, did I, did I, I cannot remember it. It's a blur. I don't know what it is. I, I, then I spent the rest of the night. You guys remember how Jessa did her epic set and it was good, but then she had a panic attack in the San Diego hotel room. And I, I almost did that. Um, but uh, I just like slowly, as my memory came back throughout the night, remembered 
detail after detail of things that I did wrong in my set where I was like, you, you forgot to say the word ever. You didn't say <laughs> ever. And that's why they didn't laugh hard enough because you forgot the word ever, you ass. And then I, um, I had so much adrenaline afterwards. I just talked to everyone, uh, way too much. I said way too many words to absolutely everyone, but it was cool. I had friends from high school that, that came out to see me. Oh, your friends are great. I had friends from college who came to see me and, uh, Jessa came to see me. Jessa. What a great girlfriend. What a great girlfriend. She spent all of yesterday trying to get me to fucking relax. (laughs) She was like, let's take you to a massage. Let's get you massage so you can fucking relax, man. And uh, it totally worked. It totally worked. And it was uh, nice to have you in the audience. It was nice to view you brought she brought me french fries immediately after my set that's a great sign uh, of a good girlfriend she walked straight up to you and hands you french fries like i was i was 10 feet from the stage when she gave me fr- uh, a basket of i know french fries. and Brian's like why did you aggressively charge him with french fries <laughs> i knew he needed them i, I could like- see the color drain from his face he needed nutrients and sustenance I know how that adrenaline dump is right after you get off the stage. You're like shaky and you need. Dude, food. it was so bad. It felt like coming down. I couldn't. Be- I've not. I've not had. I feel depressed today, uh, like as if I had done drugs last night because I had three weeks of tension build up for that set, and it all came to a boiling point in those seven minutes. And then afterwards, uh, yeah, I was just shaking. It was. It was crazy. This is why people, it's why we get addicted to this shit. But uh, let's get down to business. Yeah, uh, let's introduce our guest today, the G word. The G word? (laughs) You guys might have been uh, been wondering, what did he say? Girlfriend? This is the first time I think we've said it. I I think it's only the 12th time I've said it. out loud ever in general i am getting better at it uh but i did ask jessa to be uh if she wanted to be my girlfriend i was like yeah if you wanted to be my girlfriend that would be okay <laughs> I would and be i a, was like what i'd be a, i said i said if you wanted to be my girlfriend <laughs> that would i would be i would be all right with that he murmured an invitation to being his girlfriend uh and you know how much God hates murmuring. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. Oh, whatever. I just thought you maybe you maybe like that. It seems to seem like something you had said before. And I just uh, <laughs> was just bringing it up again. Now, Jess is my official, non-exclusive, non-monogamous, <laughs> out-of-state girlfriend. Um. You guys have noticed in the last couple episodes, uh, I, uh, well, no, I shouldn't say you've noticed. In the last couple episodes, we've brought up some things that highlight my fear of intimacy. Jessa complimented me, and I sunk in, in between couch cushions, <laughs> and it was a, uh, and it was hard to leave in there, but it, we felt like it was highlighted. So today, we were going to like delve more into my fear of intimacy. We've done. A couple funny podcasts recently. We did a spooky podcast, but it's time to get back to our bitter bread and butter. <laughs> our very our very depressing dinner rolls with sadness margarine and uh, get into like deep emotional stuff. This is going to be an episode where Aaron cries again. Guaranteed by the end of this episode, Aaron will have found something to cry about. That's what you call foreshadowing, baby. But intimacy is something that has been difficult for me, and uh, it has caused a lot of problems. We talked about it in the episode Love Me But Not Like That, that Jessa is very afraid of rejection, and I was very afraid of you know someone uh, loving me. And 
we've spent a lot of time in the last year talking about this, but it's really come to a to a. I feel like we finally really made progress on it in the last few months, and really, I think Jessa got to a point where she really understood for the first time what my fears were and why it was so hard for me to be loved and why I made things so difficult. And then she was just kind of like, I don't know, you were just more at peace with me. And then that gave me the room that I needed to feel comfortable asking you. But even then, so there was this day we were in Indianapolis and I think we went to bed talking about this kind of stuff and we were sad and I, and I went to bed thinking, why isn't she my girlfriend? Why don't I just say it? She's, she's my girlfriend in, in everything but name only and it's just because I'm too scared to say it and what am I scared of? Let's examine those fears. Let's get down to it and I did. I spent that night thinking about it. I woke up the next morning two hours before you just thinking about this and I really laid these fears out and I said, are these fears true? Like, I feel like it's a trap. I feel like I'm going to be stuck. I feel like she doesn't really love me. I feel like this. And I said, is that really true? She does love you. She, re- she read books on, on fear of intimacy just to understand you better. She does all these things for you. Uh, you can leave at any time you want. You can break up whenever you want. It's not a trap. It's this. It's that. You are worthy of love. I told all these things and I said, I will ask her to be my girlfriend. I'll do it. And you woke up and I was I was excited to surprise. I knew you were going to be so happy. And then I couldn't speak. I was like, I couldn't say it. I couldn't say it. I was Joseph Smith in the sacred grove. My tongue was bound by the dark one. I was unable to speak. I could not get the words out of my mouth. I was petrified. I was frozen still and I just kind of I just kind of said nothing all day and you just stayed sad at me and uh it wasn't until the next day that like things were just getting so much sadder. <laughs> we were at a gas station outside of an airport and I just said I I I I want you, I I would like you to be my girlfriend. Do you want to be my girlfriend? And it was so hard. I couldn't believe how hard it was to say, but I, I, I was really scared of it and it felt better. It felt better. It felt like, it felt like throwing up asking Jessa to be my girlfriend was a lot like throwing up. <laughs> Have y'all ever vomited? That's what uh, asking Jessa to be my girlfriend was oh, like so where it just, it gets worse until you actually do it. You know, do you know how you would, you know, when throwing up is like a relief, you're just getting sicker and sicker and you're like, I wish I would throw up. I know I'll feel better once I do it, but it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And then, and then, uh, I like up until the moment I said it, I thought I was going to die. If I said it, I, I didn't think I was going to die. Uh, I did think maybe I was going to be sick. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I thought it was just going to be awful. And then I actually said it. And, uh, it was just, it was as, it was just like a huge relief. Just like when you, you see all your regurgitated food in the toilet bowl after you puke. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and you're like, ah, that's better. You flush it down and you're like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm all better now. That's what it felt like. No, it was, it was a, a sweet relief after I said it and I didn't die, which was a, a surprise. Very nice. Uh, I've waited my whole life to be compared to pre-vomit. Um, I'm pretty sure someone has already compared to you. <laughs> are you sure? Do you want? You should go back and check the notes. You think I'm the first one? Really? Okay. For me, it was just um, I. I think I was giving up, which I guess makes sense that those couple of days felt very sad for you, but that it, for me, it was the first time that I was like, I felt like I was at peace with maybe it's just never going to be a thing. Maybe you thought it was going to be a thing. Cause the whole year of the rejection experience served me in that every time I felt rejected, I felt like I just kept going down 
level after level after level within myself. And every time I would be like, boom, I fixed it. But this is like this dynamic triggered most of the anxiety that I've experienced in the last year. And I would be deep inside of myself trying to figure out why this experience, like trying to figure out this experience. And I would always come out the other side, having just found a part of myself or learned something about myself that you were the reflection in which I did it. I did that work, but it ended up not having anything to do with you. And what I really feel like happened over the summer was I felt like I, through this experience, through this love experience, I got down into the basement room where I at some point locked my inner child and rescued her is what it felt like and found this part of myself that is capable of loving freely and has that kind of innocence hopefulness in relationships you know because I think I, I've never like my whole life I've been like I don't attach right I don't attach to anybody right I don't love anyone right I don't love anybody in a vulnerable way I don't let anybody truly close and I don't think I was capable of doing that so long as I locked that part of myself away and I feel like through this process I have like gone deeper and deeper into myself. I found all kinds of like defense mechanisms. I identified all kinds of things that I hadn't done since I was a kid, ways that I would like check the line and take people's temperatures to see if I was safe, see if I was okay. And it was awful because like I, this was like I peeled back this onion of insecurity and I'm still now more sensitive than I've ever been before and I don't know how to control it. I'm more insecure than I've ever been before and I don't know how to control. Like so much of my so many of my defense mechanisms are gone and I don't like love it right now, but I go after things more boldly than I did before because those defense mechanisms were like, would take the risk, assess the risk and be like, nope, too much risk of getting a door slammed in your face. Just don't go for it. And now I'm just, I just don't have the patience anymore to beat around the bush and try to get things indirectly. I'm just like, ask for things. If I get rejected, it's not that big of a deal because I faced a lot of that. I got a little bit further into things that I was afraid of, things that I had avoided my whole life. And I started having feelings that were so deeply triggering. And my logical mind was like, okay, Jessa, after the first or second time that we had kind of like said, okay, we're never going to do this again. And by we, I mean you. And, uh, and then I would feel like, oh my God, like, uh, but I, you know, I love him, blah, blah, blah. After that happened a couple of times, my logical mind's like, why don't you wait a week before you start mourning? Why don't you see what happens next time you see each other and see if this is permanent and then decide to be sad? But I couldn't help it. Like it was so deeply, deeply triggering that I started following that. I started following that pain to like, where's the last time I felt this pain? Where's the first time I felt this pain? And I just kept getting deeper and deeper inside of myself. And in the beginning, I learned so much about my defense mechanisms and my reactions to those things, to those feelings. And then after a while, like over the summer, I was like, let's go find that pain because this pain is bigger than this moment. And I think that that is what happens in relationships. I think that is the nature of relationships is you have that little honeymoon period and then you, then, then you start triggering each other. And I think it's easy to get caught up in the trigger rather than saying like, why do I feel this? Like this feels much deeper than whatever petty dumb thing. Why does it feel so bad that you liked someone else's post on Instagram? Which is like one of my favorite things to talk shit about people in relationships. And now that I'm kind of looking at it from this this standpoint, I'm like, oh, okay. So it's not just that every chick that cares about their their husband looking at someone else's or liking someone else's post on Instagram is just petty. I think it's petty that we celebrate that in society as an acceptable, like we celebrate jealousy as an acceptable part of love. When in, in reality, you're afraid of being left. You're afraid of being unlovable. You're, 
your core fear and insecurity is running a program in the background and him liking someone's post on Instagram is triggering that. And I would love to see us as a society start looking at that as a trigger and start looking at those relationship things as a way to follow that pain like a roadmap back to where that started and use that trigger as a way to get back to a core fear or pain that needs to be healed. And I started looking at it like that and I started trying to stay in that space. And then I wanted to understand you. I wanted to understand you were clearly getting triggered and your reaction to getting triggered triggered me, right? Because my fear is being rejected and whatever I, I would trigger you. And sometimes I would get so frustrated with myself because I was like, I, why can't you stop triggering him? Like, so I, I, I wanted to seek to understand you. I wanted to seek to understand how to not trigger you. And so I started reading these books and what I learned about was way less about triggering and more about what it feels like to be this is um where uh, things started clicking for me when you started asking me because you'd read stuff and you'd ask me questions like is this true for you and yeah. you would send me screenshots of the things you were reading and i had never felt more uh understood seen i was like yeah. oh oh whoa he's this dude's writing my life out right now this book i like because it was a uh a, a by the way, I got like three chapters in. It was a psychotherapist written for other psychotherapists. And it was teaching, it was teaching, it's an old Just as my psychotherapist. Teaching uh, psychotherapists how to deal with the fear of intimacy. And according, and this guy's other books, I went and looked at what his other books are, and they're all about your critical voice. So at this point is when I start to realize that these are all part of the same, all of these themes from this year are starting to come together as one big theme. So according to him, when you are uh, a child and you have some of this is a repeat of a, of a uh, episode we've already done, but that the critical voice that develops when you're a kid, it becomes your identity. And when someone tries to love you more than you love yourself or sees you in a light that's better than you see yourself, it causes anxiety and you want to push back against that and get back to an equilibrium when I love you more than you love yourself I love you in a way that doesn't compute with how you see yourself you will do things to make me reject you because then I will reject you and then everything will line everything up with feels your right. reality everything feels everything feels right again I'm like oh of course of course she doesn't want me around yeah, and so uh, no one does. Interesting was the idea that this comes from, like, this isn't like divorce triggered stuff. As a matter of fact, it made me think a lot about the nature of your marriage and the divorce, and but that this is something that would have existed your entire life. Yeah, uh, and I knew already that we were getting going in that direction after I unearthed all the stuff about. Uh, getting molested as a kid but still that that hit home that it was something that existed way before that i just lived without noticing because i was with someone that didn't love me as much as i loved them and i never noticed so yeah that hurts it hurts but this the process with you has been really bad on my end as well um and i would felt i always felt bad because it seems like you felt worse or you had more reason to feel bad because you know i kept rejecting you and pushing you away and you, and that obviously makes sense that that hurts and it was hard to explain to you how you were hurting me i was like well I, you're hurting me too and you're like, how? <laughs> By being nice to you? And I'm like, yeah, kind of. I don't know. But it always felt like an ass. You'd, you know, I would, I would complain about something or try to express some sort of pain. And you would always point out, oh, I'm not trying to make you sound like, but some, some, it would be pointed out that uh, what I was complaining about was you doing something really nice or really sweet. And. I remember when you read stuff in the book that you were like, oh, 
I get it. I'm I trying to it. find the uh, the screenshot that changed. Okay, here it is. Psychotherapy has to help the person to recognize his pseudo-independence and his defiance and not act it out. If he acts it out, he cannot get better. If he manipulates and provokes other people and controls their behavior, he ends up merely reliving the past and he doesn't change and he doesn't give up his defenses. So it says that uh, people with fear of intimacy are very manipulative where they will make you turn on them. They'll make you leave them. And um, that's what it's talking about there. Uh, he has to learn to give up his defenses and honestly ask for what he wants and honestly take a chance. He has to sweat it out when things get close with other people. He has to learn to suffer the pain of being loved and not provoke rejection. And when I read that, those words hit me so hard because I thought, uh, I'm so like, I, I'm very compassionate towards you and didn't spend an exorbitant amount of time thinking about how much you hurt me. But uh, suffer the pain of being loved and not provoke rejection. And I just think about you feeling trapped in something painful for you. And suddenly I saw all of these distancing behaviors because it talks a lot about distancing behaviors, which is just a way... I used to say, you say distancing stuff, like you say stuff designed to push me away. And I just thought of it like you in a corner in pain and, uh, you just trying to defend yourself and the, in order for you to be loved and for us to get that, you would have to suffer it. And, uh, not to provoke rejection, not to get people to attack him and thus get him off the hook. When the relationship is good, when he thinks well of himself, he has got to sweat that out like an addict who goes cold turkey. He has to take a chance and not damage the relationship. He can feel like damaging it and he can share that he feels like damaging it, but he must not do it. If he does, he ends up back where he has started. There's no growth. If he sweats it out, then he does grow. Wow. Okay. A lot of things. A lot of things I could say about that. Number one, I kind of wanted to cry when you said suffer the pain of being loved. Um, and I remember when you told me that this change something for you and you sent me the screenshot and I felt seen for the first time with you and I felt good because I felt like I, I seemed I just seemed like a huge asshole every time I tried to explain that I was hurting too but it was painful it was so painful and it's weird to talk about because I don't know why it's painful and I like what he said about um you, you have to. If you don't do it, you don't get better. You you have to sit in it and you, or you don't get better because it makes me think about how you kept coming back rejection after rejection and how I kept coming back after love after love after love and we just kept coming back because it was the only way forward. We both knew that whatever this relationship was, we were learning something from it. We were going to, we felt we were changing each other immediately. Right. We've known that that's the story of us is that we were, that we had this effect on each other, that we changed each other. And so deep down, even when I didn't want to, I know that this is the way forward. And that's the reason why I said, I finally told you, I want you to be my girlfriend. Do you want to be my girlfriend? And, I've, I said that because I knew that I can't just keep doing this. I can't just keep saying no and I can't just keep pushing her away. I could. I knew that I could. I knew that I could say, uh, Jessa, I don't want this ever. Stop. Don't. Let's never talk. I, I, knew, I knew that I could do it. I knew that I could. Uh, but I knew that I wouldn't get better. And like I was hurting you more. And I said, I want you to be my girlfriend. Do you want to be my girlfriend? And then you cried. And I, did. I am, and we hugged and I immediately was like, oh, oh, oh. 
that wasn't bad. That wasn't that bad. I thought it was going to be bad, but it's, 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 it's not that bad. Like I immediately felt better. And like the, the things that I think you've seen, the differences where you're like, Oh, it's already been better. Yeah. Uh, is just been because, because I broke through that barrier. Yeah. And it's okay to be intimate now. It's, you know, it's easier. I still, I'm thinking about all these things that I'm doing. They're conscious efforts. I wouldn't say this necessarily comes easy, but I at least feel like I have permission to do it. Like it's easier to now, I'm like, it's not that, it's not that big of a deal to do something nice or, you know, it's not that big of a deal to accept something nice from her. It's not that big of a deal. Like I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. But I absolutely suffered through the pain. And if I, if I haven't talked too much yet, one other thing from that passage about if he thinks highly of himself, he has to sweat it out. Hell yeah. There are times, nothing to do with you, but like just, I, I have to deal with with my own opinion of myself. When my own opinion of myself gets too high, I react poorly to it. You know, I, I, I have ups and downs. If I feel myself too much, I bring myself back down. And to think about how I have to sweat it out with myself, I do, uh, in, in retrospect, I would say I probably have been practicing with myself before I was able to do the, yeah, I've learned, it's not like I'm just now learning to be nice to myself. I think I've spent the years since the divorce, the last two years working on it, right? not proficient at it or whatever, but I'm way better than, than I used to be. But I don't think that I realized, or at least I didn't think about it in those terms until he said that when I went and I realized that like, okay, I, I do the same things to myself that I do to Jessa you know, another person, I treat myself like there's this, that there is this battle between myself. Like there's two different persons there that, uh, have a relationship and I need to improve that relationship. So, so what if I haven't gotten deep down yet? Like I haven't found my inner child in the room that I've locked him in yet because that's all those memories are blocked off. You asked earlier, like how far back have you gone? And I kind of gave you a wishy-washy answer, but that's because I can't, I can't get there. I I've gotten a little bit, but I, I can't go back that far, but all these things are, have been showing up like arrows that are just pointing back to my childhood where you're like, okay, something happened. Okay, like why, why am I, uh, like I, I can find all these fears and I can remember times that I had that fear as a kid and I go, why, why is that there? When, what happened before this, what, in that part that's all blocked off, like what did, what did my parents say to me? What happened? Here's what? my, here's my theory. First of all, your your memory is fascinating to me. And I think sometimes when, when I say something about something from our history and you say, I don't remember that. And I go, what? And I'm, I'm so interested in how your f- memory works. But I think sometimes you think I'm offended because I uh, maybe it seems that way in what I'm saying. But, what? <laughs> uh, because I said it like that. But what is very interesting to me is you the way that your brain catalogs lines from movies where if I'll watch a movie and two weeks later can't tell you what that movie was about my brain is so foggy on stuff like that my brain is so foggy on what happened yesterday but there is a very clear catalog of memories from that are a part of the narrative of my entire life Um, and when we get into childhood stuff with you you have so few childhood memories and so few Memories that point toward the actual, uh, you have tons of clear memories of people that you didn't have an emotional connection with, but then it's real hard to get, there's not very good, clear memories of people you did have an emotional connection with just things I've noticed. But when reading about the development of 
these critical companions. So from like a hypnosis standpoint, your subconscious is being programmed. There's programs running. And if you have a neglectful parent, an overly critical parent, um, an abusive parent, you basically adopt this program that's going to run and criticize you for your entire life and, and keep your self-worth at whatever level that parent did when you were young. But your parents were loving people, right? Right. And so I try to uh, dig around and see, like, did you get any... Because for me, like I, I have... I know learned... that I had some problems with my dad because he was... Uh... Not emotional. Yeah. Yeah, but then he got better and... Well... It would only matter what your impression as a child was because okay. I've learned that my mom did love me, but it didn't matter because she I didn't think she loved me. So that's all that mattered was the was the movie that was playing in my head. I think it's religion. I think religion programmed uh, low self-worth into you. Think about what is the what is the word that comes up when you have low self-worth? You're not worthy. What does religion teach children? Straight up tells them you're not worthy of God's love. It it pumps shame and unworthiness and that you have to earn basic human uh worthy, you know what I mean? So like uh I think it was religion. I think it was religion that created your critical companion. Really? Because uh, uh, I just got real emotional thinking about how, uh, as a little kid, like what I, I have a lot more exploring to do. But uh, I wonder if I thought that my dad didn't love me. And I wonder if that's uh, why I am the way that I am with Ethan and why I care so much. Uh, about and, you know all this all this stuff that you, you hear me talk about Ethan all the time and yeah. everything that that I'm afraid of of him not <gasps> loving me and 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 him not knowing that I love him and and like why I'm so overly effusive with him and just when you said something just clicked when you're like it doesn't it wouldn't matter it, all that matters is your childhood adult. impression and I mean uh, I I. I, he was, he was really, uh, cold and hard, uh, in, in all of our early years and stuff. And I, uh, I don't know. I don't know what I just, the, the memories that I have are, I have some, I have some scary memories of my dad. I think that the, by the time that I, my memories check back in, I feel like I know my dad loves me and, to become a teenager and I go on a mission. Like I felt like my dad really loved me when I was, a, I felt like I was obviously his favorite kid. And so what, maybe there's just been a really, you know, just, a that, I don't know. Maybe there's just been a bad imp first impression that's been lodged in my inner child this whole time. But that, that connected, that connected reson sorry, resonated when you, when you said that, and I think I'm going to spend some more time thinking about it. Because, you know, I've asked you a million times about the dynamic between you and your dad because it seems like the perfect setup of uh, I brush it off a very emotional boy and a, and a cold detached from his emotions. Uh, you talk about everything that he doesn't. So I've asked you a million times, how was that dynamic? And you're like, my dad loves me. I know my dad loves me. And it never really, duh. Because uh, I'm still learning. It didn't matter what was actually happened. It mattered what my uh, beliefs were. So here's how that affects your self-worth. Children have to believe that their parents are great. And in this book, it explains it as like a biological imperative because they are your caretakers. They are how you survive. So you have to believe that they're great and perfect. And if your impression is that they don't feel the same way about you, you will adopt their impression of you. So you automatically put your parents on a pedestal. And if your parents don't want you, you will adopt this belief that you are unlovable, that you are innately unlovable and that you, there is something wrong with you. And you will carry that through your life. At some point, your logical mind is going to say, oh, this is just who my dad is as a person. He loves me. But that didn't prevent four-year-old you, five-year-old you from adopting this perception. Uh, if your impression was that your feelings were a problem because your parents told you to stop crying all the time or because you felt things deeper than your parents were uh, capable of relating to, uh, 
you'll spend the rest of your life thinking that your emotions are a problem, that your feelings are a problem. And, um, that's been the thing I've always tried to, uh, have been fascinated with you because I have Phoenix is, it feels very deeply. It's a very emotional person who I feel like I've failed on several occasions because I don't get it. Phoenix, um, on the fear of commitment stuff, Phoenix, who has a lot of your person, like I see a lot of similar personality traits, which you're both Capricorns, but we won't get into that. Um, that's the, that's the first time she's ever, every other time she's brought this up, she goes full into the whole Capricorn thing. I don't, but here on the, po- the here podcast. on the podcast, she gets shy and she's like, oh, just, oh. Anyway, I'm that- a, I'm a, I'm a Capricorn. That's almost a Sagittarius. So I'm not like, I've got some saggy traits to me, and uh, but but Phoenix is full on, full on Capricorn, full on dead in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, some other things I learned about you because I feel like I'm dawdling around the kid thing. Um, some other things I learned about you. I read this Fear of Commitment book, and it talks about other forms of fear of intimacy, where uh, some people can't take a job because they're so afraid of it being the wrong decision that they'll just like camp on that decision for Yeah, let's, I was hoping we'd get to talk about this. This made me feel so understood when I when when you connected the fact my inability to pick a coat uh to buy. I needed to buy a new coat because I left my left that perfect little coat of mine in that theater in Philadelphia. It was so dumb. Why did I bring it? Okay, you, had- you left the coat in August. So this is like while I'm putting together some, I'm reading the fear of intimacy stuff. And I didn't, I never, I didn't feel like I felt like shit or get off the pot, ask me to be your girlfriend. Like it, it, it was never like that in my head. I just, uh, I started to watch, there have been other things cause I move very fast. I make it, I get an idea in my head. I make a decision like that. I'm not, I used to be accused of being impulsive, but if you ever watch me dawdle on a decision, I'll make the wrong decision. If I take too long to think about something, that 100% of my mistakes come from, uh, uh, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> me thinking too long about something will result in a mistake a hundred percent of the time. Cause I will, I will not pick my gut instinct. I'll pick, pick whatever I've overthought. You overthink it. But so you watched me go from August to October. I watched you talk about buying a coat for a month. Uh, just ruminating on the 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 <laughs> the fact that it was going to just just like pre-gaming on a decision yeah. that you were eventually going to have to make and i thought like uh it just didn't register that that was like actually part of the decision making process and then when you were picking a coat so this is the thing with me always i get dressed and that's it i spend very i've just now started like paying attention to what i look like a little bit and i I'm always with men who who will ask me what if their outfit looks okay, and it's always funny to me because I'll almost never ask that. And if I like, so that kind of stuff where you were sending me pictures of the coat, I was like, well, I don't usually uh, care about the, you know, what I mean, like I wouldn't send him a picture of should I get this just because it it's not a I'm a weird girl like that. But then like nine pictures later, I was like, dude, he's taking this coat thing dead fucking serious. And then, uh, and then when I, when I talked to you on the phone, you were actually like anxious. Yeah. Uh, I don't like, it's a big purchase. They're expensive. I'm going to, I need it to match with everything. I need it to, I need a one that's going to cover all the looks that I need. And I don't, uh, want to pay a lot of money and then not like it and then not want to wear it. And I don't want to spend money on the, on the wrong thing. And I don't want to look like I tried too hard and I don't like, I just need to find the jacket that's right. That last jacket was right and it was perfect and it was an easy decision and I'll never find that jacket again. (laughs) And yeah, it's a, it was a huge, when I do stuff like that, it's a big undertaking. I did yeah. research first. I did research on jackets, started looking online at different jackets because I knew I had time. I knew it wasn't cold yet. Yeah, when and you I had that like, whole I, like, month of, uh, uh, yeah. And that. I could think about the type of jacket that I wanted. And then I got to go shopping. I hit like two different outlet stores across like a couple of weeks and tried different stuff and returned different stuff and finally settled on something. And it was, 
like asking you to be my girlfriend when I stood there in this one store with this jacket forever. I think I think four different employees came up to me in front of the mirror to tell me that I looked good in that jacket. Yeah, and we're uh, trying to close, please. No, it's in the <laughs> middle of the day, Jessa. But they all just wanted that. Because then at checkout, they said the checkout person, did any employee help you yeah, today? Yeah, they make money. Uh, and, I'm like, and I said, I, all of them? I don't, can you just split the bonus up amongst everyone? <laughs> Seems fair. But it was so hard just to just say, I'm going to buy this jacket. I'm going to buy this jacket. I'm going to buy this jacket. I'm going to buy this. And I, don't, I don't need it today. Maybe I could just think about it. You know, why don't I just buy it and then maybe replant just keep taking home for a week and maybe re- return it like i wouldn't it took us so much convincing to get to the checkout line with that coat and it's like this for me and a lot of things a it, lot of things and when you connected that to a fear of intimacy i i breathed a sigh of relief i was like that makes sense and i don't feel i jokingly weird. said i guess before i get offended at how long because we s- still weren't I said, I guess at how long, uh, or before I get offended at uh, your fear of commitment, I should think of whatever. I said you made funny. a great joke. It was it was it. fantastic. Uh, you all just have to take her word for it, okay? <laughs> but she's she's really funny when she's not on a podcast. <laughs> and <laughs> she's not I, on a comedy podcast, but uh, I. Yeah. Then it just came into focus and I thought about all of the times where you I've watched push it. me on a decision when you want to talk about travel plans or when you talk about this and I'm like, huh, 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 huh. yeah, I need, we've talked about our speeds before where uh, I say you move faster than me is how we've described it before. But I do need a lot of time to make decisions. And I just said, well, I'm a Capricorn and I got to plan stuff out, you know. But this made it way more obvious. This brought it into focus uh, because my whole life has just been people pumping the brakes for me. And so my whole life has felt like a test in patience. And (laughs) they they call things Jessa time. And because to me, a week feels like 20 years and I get anxiety. uh, If I get an idea in my head, like I want to do this in December, the second I get that idea, there feels like there's a clock ticking, tick, 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 tick. And your options are going to be gone if you don't move on this right now. Either uh, the things are going to get sold out. They're going to be too expensive uh, you're not going to be able to pull it off. You're not going to get everything planned in time. Like, and so for me, there is the opposite anxiety. So a lot of times when I am surprised that it hasn't happened more with us working together, but I'm really good. I, and I, well, I think we're both really good at what am I trying to say? The, navigating bend, the other person bend, yeah i was gonna say bend to the other person i think we're very good at like being flexible with each other yeah i think you um because you loved me you're okay with, with me pumping brakes more than you are with other people pumping brakes and i think uh because i felt safe with you I felt more comfortable giving in to your demands than other people's, you know, yeah. I'd just be like, okay, plan it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do it. You know? And also just the fact it's, it's way easier for me that you would do all the little stuff for these, for these decisions, you know? So it yeah. was less stress for me because when, when I think about something I want to do in December, I have a uh, hundred alarms going off that, I I I can't deal with all at once. It's too much to think about this thing that has to be planned on this thing, which hinges on this thing, which means I have to talk to this person, but I don't want to send a text to that person right now. So uh, that I can't, I don't know. Uh, can we just, oh, this is too many things. I don't want to do it. No, 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 no. But if you were going to plan the trip in December, whatever run we were going to make, it is a little bit easier for me to just uh, say yes then. So that, that's part of it, but there's, 
I don't have thing. I don't have my Thanksgiving plans made yet, and it, and it stresses me out, and it and it gives me, it makes me sad. All the, the options that I have, and I just I do this with a hundred different decisions when something just doesn't feel immediately right or okay. I can't do it because even when it does feel okay, I can come up with some reason. I hate being locked into stuff. This is, I say because it relates to a relationship, but I hate being locked into something. I don't like it. I don't like making plans with people very far in advance. I feel like I end up wasting a lot of my time in Salt Lake City and not seeing friends that I actually care about because I don't try to make plans until the day I'm there. Uh, I happen to be here on a Friday night and I strangely don't have Ethan um, and I got no one to hang out with. I knew that this day was coming. I could have I could have called I could have texted Eileen or Jacob or any number of person that I want to see but on Monday when I thought about texting them I was like who knows how I'll feel on Friday. I don't want to make plans and then break them. And then break them or no, I wouldn't break them. I'd be locked into it. I I would go against my will, you know. Uh cuz I don't stand up for it. I just go Do you think you developed that while you were going through the divorce and you were sad or has that always been who you were? I I always hated being locked into stuff. But the divorce I started I don't I started standing up for myself in a whole bunch of different ways. I started being selfish and putting myself first. And so I started, but like, it wasn't like a, it was a very small step. So I just, uh, I still rarely tell people what I'm thinking. I'll just ignore their texts. But like, for me, that was a, that was an improvement where I was like, Hey, I'm not going to be locked in to your, to, to, to some plan. I want the freedom, but I just, I'll be a shitty friend instead. So I just feel like I'm a bad friend to so many people and that I, I, but I, I think I will now cancel on plans more than uh, I used. To, I, I I never used to, and now I can sometimes. So I think that's the new part. I think before I always hated it, and it just and it made life really upsetting for me. I was just mad all the time about different things because I was never doing what I wanted to do. You know, right? Or and uh, and I would go along with it. But anyway, yeah. Does that answer the question? It's so interesting to me. Uh, okay, so some like the older I get, I get weird. I catch myself like falling into weird anxiety things that I have to then like clean back out of my brain where I'll get hung up on. I don't like to feel trapped. That's it. I don't like to be places without my own car. I don't like to stay at other people's houses, which I think I have presented to you as some type of. I'm crowned up. Uh, yeah, I've, I'm I, like I, your I'm parents spoiled jokes. you. This yeah. was they hugged you when you cried, and now you can't sleep in someone's house. Uh, I make jokes about it. Um, I don't. I, I don't like to feel stuck places. I get weirdly hung up on whether or not I'm going to be comfortable when I'm out. So I am afraid of being too hot or too cold. I'm afraid of my feet being too hot or too cold. I'm afraid of my shoes getting dirty. I'm afraid of not having a water bottle. Uh, the second I realize I don't have Tylenol in my purse, I will get ahead. Like all these like dumb hang up things that you just kind of start to develop. And if you, if you allow them to exist, it becomes... Uh, by the time you're 60 or someone who can't leave their house. So I have to clean these things out of my mind all the time and be like, Jessa, because my overall personality is I'll just deal with it when I get there. I'm going to jump off this cliff because I think there's money at the bottom of this cliff. Do you remember me telling you this when we first became friends? Yeah. Uh, I'm I the type of you person. You sound like a crazy person. I am the type of person who will have a gut instinct that there's money if I jump off this cliff and I jump down and there's a pile of money, but then I'm too much of a flail to do anything with it. And you're the kind of person who would know exactly what we should do when we get down here, but there's no fucking way you're jumping off that cliff unless someone else has jumped off before you and can verify that the stuff is down here. And so I thought that we made a great team because, uh, that's not what I was thinking of when I said you sound like a crazy person, but, uh, yeah, I do remember. You do you. remember that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
So my overall life philosophy is just do it and deal with it later. I would just go buy three coats and give them to Coco because I ended up not liking any of them and it wouldn't bother me at all. So that's the other thing I keep asking you about. What's it feel like once you've made the decision? Was it all the anxiety for nothing or do you end up looking back at the decision and doubting the decision that you made? Sometimes. Sometimes I feel like when I make the right decision, it feels great and I know it. And when I make the wrong decision, it feels awful. And that fuels the anxiety next time too, because I know that I'm right. I know, you know, that I know, I know that I'm right to take this long to make my decisions because I can point to a bunch of decisions that turned out poorly. And those but, uh, decisions were made too quickly. Maybe. Hmm. May I, I, some of them are sometimes I've made decisions too quickly and that's the problem. Other times I took my time and I made the wrong decision because I feel like that's possible. That's why it's anxious to sit and weigh stuff out because it's impossible to know which one is the right decision, which one's the wrong decision. Sometimes you will make the wrong decision, but I am going to take as long as I can every time. So I give every decision the best chance. Like every, every fork that I come to, I'm giving, I may be wrong, but, uh, I'm not, I know that I'm not wrong because I didn't take long enough, you know, right. you know, then I really hate myself. I'm like, you, you fucking idiot. Why didn't you just think about this? This is dumb. You know, the thing like with Asheville that, uh, where I got accepted, but we had this other opportunity and I didn't know what to do or like at first there wasn't another opportunity, but I just, I felt uneasy about it. Right. And then when the opportunity came up, I still felt uneasy all the way until the end until you said, uh, like I'll get you a spot on Conan. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and then that was the right decision. It was absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. So I don't think that my, uh, I don't know. I I don't think my process is totally wrong. No. I just think that it's uh it's really it's so much better now that I under I'm informed about why I have this process and and stuff and I think that like anything there's just unhealthy degrees and that this will help me cut down on more of the unhealthy stuff where like there's so much self-hate stuff that I want to get to the bottom of and get over how much better li will life be when I don't hate myself. I think I always knew I'd be happier when I didn't hate myself, but now I can see what it means on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm like, oh, imagine a future where uh, buying a coat is fun because yeah. you do not hate yourself. Right. You know? And I'm like, oh, that's why I should love myself. And it, it, it's so uh, vague, but now when you put it in terms of buying a coat, I'm like, oh, it would be nice if buying a coat was more fun than, yeah. than this terrifying thing um but i by the way when you think for a long time you come to the conclusion i'm not saying that thinking for a long time or moving at the speed of light are right or wrong i think that they are just our process but uh a lot of times i've noticed that my initial gut what the right decision in this is uh, doesn't usually match your initial gut. But then once you have thought about it for a long time, then they line up a lot of times on the times where we're right. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm someone who, who runs on instinct. And if I think, then all my dumb thoughts clog things up. And that's why I have to make decisions fast because I have to listen to that quick, small voice. And then any thought after that just fucks everything up for me. Yeah. I spend... I don't think it's that way for you. I, I think there are lots of things that I don't do that I've always thought that it was because I'm lazy. And just this week I realized, oh, what? A, and you would, I, I remember one of the early things that you were trying to correct about my self image was that I was lazy. You're like, you're clearly not. Yeah. You're kind of hard on yourself if you think you're lazy because I don't think you're lazy. And I'm like, and I would point out, I had a lot of, re I'm like, oh yeah, well, I don't do this. There's a lot of things that I'm lazy on, but I'm seeing certain things that I procrastinate and it's not because of laziness. It's because, um, the anxiety of not knowing how to start. I couldn't write a single paper in high school or college and I write really well. I like writing. Mm -hmm. It's fun. I like it, but I 
every single thing that I ever turned in started with a, with the, at a, like, how do I say Whatever the clock, however many hours I would need to write that before it was due, that's when it got started. And I never started it before. If I did, I just would go to the computer lab in college and I would just sit there and dick off and do nothing. I would just, uh, dick off is not a phrase. Uh, uh, I would just, I would sit there, I would unhinge my dick, I would place it next to the mouse and then I would do nothing. Uh, I think dick off is. uh, I think dick around is what I was going to say. Dick around, just dick around, you know. But dick or off. fuck off. Yeah, fuck off. And I just yeah. combined the two of them. <laughs> I would do nothing. And I thought this because I was lazy. But it's, I would sit there and you know how I was complaining on uh, on my car ride, how I kept rethinking the same first line of my set over and yep. over again, the set that to get ready for the showcase that I'm nervous about. And, I'm, and I can't get anywhere because I can't decide how to start. That's how every paper was. What's the first sentence going to be? I don't know yet. Okay, well, I can't figure out anything until I figure out this. And yep. I would obsess over that and obsess over that. And there was no cure except for the clock. When it got to a point that there's no, we've passed the point of no return. This is zero hour. If you don't start now, it doesn't get turned in. Then I would force myself to put something on paper and I would just churn out. I would just churn out great work. And I, but I had to be on the clock and I just thought I'm a lazy person who procrastinates and I have to have a deadline in order to motivate me because I'm so lazy. I don't hang up pictures at my apartment because I'm lazy. I'm so lazy. I can't just get a hammer and nail out and, and put them up or I don't ever do elaborate Halloween costumes. This was the, the start of the revelation this week. Yeah. I don't do elaborate Halloween costumes because I'm lazy. And I was talking to uh, a fan of the podcast, Jenny, about her Halloween costume, and it clicked with me. And I went, oh, that's not it. I don't do it because it's a decision that I have to make, because it requires planning in advance, because I'm worried about if this costume is good enough, or if people, if other people are going to have this costume, if it's original enough, if it's too. A niche that no one's going to get it. If it's going to take work to go get it, if it's the there's a hundred more decisions to do a Halloween costume, and I'm like, fuck it, I'll just no way. I usually find some easy pop culture. Like last year, I was like Baby Driver because that movie came out, and uh, I had a uh, a jacket that I hadn't <laughs> lost yet <laughs> that looked like, and I was like, I'll just be Baby Driver. And like the day on Halloween, I was like, does someone have sunglasses? Does someone have uh, iPod headphones? And like that was my whole costume because it didn't take any work. And I thought that that's a good sign of how lazy I am. But it, I don't think so anymore. I think I don't hang pictures up because I the discomfort that comes from thinking of the permanence of hanging something up. And like, is this the spot that I want to hang it? Is this where I want it? Is that where I want it? That I think that I can just avoid those to... things. And I can just by not doing them. So... Okay, so let's dissect this a little bit. What is, why why do the consequences feel so... Permanent? Yeah. Like I'm married to him? I don't know. Uh, there's a lot I, could, I, I am thinking about right now. I uh, definitely think we've touched something. I... Definitely know that I, I don't know, everything you said made sense. Everything made sense, made sense. Because I always loved my dad and looked up to him. And I thought I always knew he loved me, but I probably didn't. And I can think back to times when I was real scared of him. And I can think back to times when I withdrew because I knew because I was sad and I had to be by myself when I was sad because uh, nobody wanted. I remember hide, uh, hiding in my closet 
on top of a dresser behind shirts that were hanging up and I was just like perfectly hidden in there just cause I was sad. And I remember my dad coming into the room and looking for me and, and then like shouting down, like he's not up here. I don't know where he is. Uh, but, uh, he probably did see me, and, right. you know, just then shouting down, uh, which I don't think I ever knew until right now. So <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't know how I'm accessing. I know that I've thought about this before, but it's been a really long time. It seems like a really, whatever but like i knew that i was just uh they were i i I know that i I feel like i did that a lot i would just run away and hide when i was sad and i probably because i knew that i couldn't be sad in front of my parents or whatever i felt like they didn't care and uh it's probably just some sort of idea i got when i was really really little anyway this uh episode's long and I, we're going to keep recording stuff now. We're going to keep talking about, we got more inner child stuff. We've got pain as a roadmap stuff that we can, that we can get into. And I don't know what we'll do. Maybe we'll put more of this on Patreon later in the week, or maybe it'll just be next week or something, but we're definitely going to keep talking about it. Buy tickets to our shows and uh, come buy t-shirts and uh, anyway. Oh, and we definitely, we want to talk more about this religion uh, unworthiness stuff. Yeah. Oh, that was cool that we you, just unearthed something else at the same time. Yeah, I was like, shh, 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 shut up though. <laughs> I was like, I, you're, I'm losing, you're going to make me lose it. I'm yeah, on, the, I'm on a thread. That's how I felt several I'm times on a during thread this right episode here. was like, I, there, were, there were the two things I wanted to hit, which was pain as a roadmap and uh, the religion thing because I then found an article. The article came across. The article that you shared the in the thing. group? Mm-hmm. If you're not in our Facebook group, you can get in it because we share a lot of stuff that's relevant to whatnot. Uh, also, maniac man, yeah. when you said when you read that quote about t- defenses, like he will if mm-hmm. he doesn't stop, if he doesn't do this, he'll never like take down those defenses. It made me think so much of the sea pill in in maniac. Yep. And please watch Maniac so we can freely talk about it. It's the best thing you'll do. It's such a good choice. Maniac is like if an AI robot listened to all of our podcast and then just wrote a show. No, I don't know. I maybe so many. I I want to cancel the podcast because of Maniac because I feel like, oh, they they did all the same subjects we like to explore so much better than I could ever it's just such good art. Just l- watch it and let it wash over you. Don't worry about it too much. Don't try to it's, figure it out. Don't figure just it all it. out. Just take whatever's there for you. It's a beautiful show. I love it. But uh, anyway, yeah, have a have a happy Halloween. Uh, and uh, we will see you guys soon on Mormon and the Meth Head. If you put a Mormon and a Meth Head together, this is what they sound like. Aaron would all just so read our fans. Listen to them talking to Mike. It's a good show. 5 p.m. emails from your boss, surprise visits from in-laws, missing soccer cleats. Lucky California knows it's easy to get thrown off schedule. Let us help you out with home delivery powered by Instacart. You can get groceries delivered in as fast as one hour, including fresh produce and fresh baked bakery items. Right now, you can save $10 when you spend $50 using promo code LUCKYCA10. Place your order at shop.luckysupermarkets.com. Lucky California, the golden state of eating.